In this episode of the California Probation Connection, Chief Mark Benini from Amador County delves into some of the recent justice reforms, how and why they were created, probation's role, and the impact these reforms have today. Well, welcome to the California Probation Connection. I appreciate you joining us today. Uh, Chief Benini from Amador, you are our first one-on-one podcast, so you're going to have to carry a lot of discussion here today. Are you ready for that? I'll, I'll do my best, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. We're really looking forward to it. Today, we're going to ta- talk about the uh, art of successful reform and how to do it and, um, and what our role is in it. So, um, you know, we've seen a lot of reform over the years uh, here in California, a lot in the last decade um, in criminal justice. And so, uh, but not all reforms are made equal, you know, or created equal. Um, we've had things like SB 678, AB 109, known as public reali- uh, public safety realignment, Prop 57. <clears throat> Maybe we can talk about those things today. Um, and why we supported various different ones and maybe why we didn't in in other areas. So uh, I would love to just jump in by asking what were some of the most critical moments you remember about these different things? Start wherever you want to. Like there's been so many different pieces to it. Where would you, what's what's been the most memorable to you? Well, for for me, um, becoming chief when I did, it seemed like uh, with SB 678, I was a newer chief. Um, I kind of was along for the ride, so to speak. Uh, and then when AB 109 came along, uh, I had a few years under my belt and I felt much more connected with what was occurring and how it was occurring. And I was part of the executive committee of CPOC at that time. So um, that's the, the the one reform that really, um, other than Prop 57, just because I was, I was involved with that as, as CPOC president. But AB 109 was really such a critical um, piece of legislation uh, and and the way um, we we were able to get involved in it, um, the way that the governor um, he had a significant problem at that time. Um, it was I mean it was really no joke. There was a three judge panel. Um, overcrowding was a, was an issue. Um, we were looking at offenders being released, and uh, ultimately to sit down and have that collaborative effort at the state level. Um, not only was just a, a great experience from a chief's perspective and a chief that, you know, is a small county chief, but ultimately um, it was it was very memorable. And I think um, as far as I can tell, I think it's working. It's, it, you know, early on it was we referred to um, offenders that were were under that umbrella as AB 109ers, you know, and, and um, some other things that uh, some other ways we referred to those that group. But ultimately, when everything played out, I think the offenders and the populations we supervise, they're just the populations we supervise. We don't, I don't hear many in the the business referring to those type, types of offenders as AB 109ers anymore. You know, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about kind of the trajectory of some of those. And, um, you know, we kind of came into CPOC around the same time, mm-hmm. you know, me as the executive director and you as chief, um, although you have many more years of uh, probation <laughs> experience under your belt than I do. But uh, but and, and you on the legislative side, you well, very many more years experience <laughs> on that side than I do. So very good. it was the, even fit. We had a good we were a good team. That's yes. that's how I see it. But the um, you know, the AB 109 experience you know now that we're we look back on it i mean we're talking 10 plus years that ago that it happened which is crazy to me but um 
And, you know, it's a good thing to try to dissect now, like what worked, what didn't, why did that work? And, mm -hmm. and that's why kind of thinking about how do you make reform work is so important to probation. I mean, we're constantly in the middle of the various reforms. Um, so you mentioned that there was a big problem and the three judge panel. And I don't know that everybody remembers some of that, you know, and I think that's really important. It wasn't really, we wanted change for the sake of change or we don't like how things are going. There was a three judge panel that was ready to literally look at flinging the doors open to, because the constitutional care was abysmal um, inside of the prison system. And CPOC and others, actually intervened in that case legally filed and that was a new thing for us we had never done that so it was a really kind of treacherous area for you as a chief to kind of wade into for us as an organization um 10 years now later we're still doing it we're still getting on down the road so is there something specific to how that reform came about um that you would credit kind of um, some of the success around how we were able to implement? I think looking back and um, being in the position with CPOC that I was in, I wasn't as uh, intimately involved at the time. Chief Pinner um, and Chief Powers, both uh, mm -hmm. since retired, uh, I think were the integral pieces in that and, and really kept the chiefs together, um, kept, kept us briefed. Um, I think the communication that occurred between the governor's office um, and our partners, state sheriffs, uh, Cal chiefs, um, CSAC, and you know any of those, I just really think back and, and um, was in awe of how Chief Penner was able to convey the message, both the problem and the solution. Um, worked through and negotiated things. And I'm, again, I'm sure you were right there too, but to, to the, the <laughs> negotiations that occurred uh, to make things happen the way they really needed to, to happen. And um, the probably the biggest piece of that, that was the smartest piece of it was uh, to look at the probation chiefs and make us the chair of the community corrections partnership. I think if, if anyone else was the chair of that, mm -hmm. um, I think there would have been problems. And then it was really um, the governor saying to the uh, counties, look, you need to figure that I have this problem, but I want you locally to figure it out, come up with a plan and you do it at your level for what works for you. We, the state, aren't going to tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also integral in, in how things played out. So um, those plans were put into place. Locals were you know, forced, although many locals do a great job of coming to the table and talking, they were forced to come to the cable to, to the table and talk work through issues and, and speaking to just to, to my county there in Amador, um, my sheriff was involved in state sheriffs. My DA was involved in CDA and um, they both eventually were president at one point. My um, chair at the time, well, well my supervisor um, ended up being the president of CSAC at, mm -hmm. at one point during kind of all of this occurring over the last 10 years and um, getting those folks uh, and I credit them a lot to, to really look at um, the issue rather than the money mm -hmm. for us locally was very important. It was, it was, here's, here is this, this population that's coming your way. Who's going to do what with it. And once we figure out who's going to do what with it, we'll assign positions, dollars, mm -hmm. funding to whatever it is that we really need. So that local 
um, aspect and the, 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 the way we solve the problems and we're allowed to solve the problems locally rather than have the state come in and tell us how it's done made all the difference in the world with such a big reform. That's a really important point, right? I mean, not only communication, it really fostered the communication locally, which I think in fairness, we know didn't always happen, right? There, We often worked in silos. Um, so there was maybe that's a positive of, of something that came from it. It did kind of force those conversations, force us to the table to figure out solutions. And then I'm hearing communication between the state and the locals um, to try to implement something that would actually work for everybody, you know, and that's, as you said, not an easy thing. And I, and I agree, you know, kind of sitting there, um, you know, being a part of some of that, it, it was, uh, it was a heavy lift. It takes a lot of work. And I think it underscores one of the things that I would say is really important to making reform successful. And that is communication. And that is communication, not just, it's often, hard to get something passed i think it's harder to make something work that's passed and that's one of the things that you know um, after 10 years you know we're constantly going back and tweaking and looking at you know what needs to be done around uh ab 109 so that's um i think a lot of people you know probably uh, hopefully our staff listening to some of this may not have really even known some of the reasons why ab 109 kind of came about so um Mm -hmm. so i appreciate you kind of sharing a little bit of that well you mentioned you were president in 2016 so yeah you're laughing like was it that long ago (laughs) um and so uh lucky you you know and and i know having served as executive director now for over 15 years you never really know what's going to happen the year that you're president you know when you sign up to to get into the chairs you know it's, it's a few years ahead of time so you don't really know what's coming your way you had a very interesting year because you did um something that really the uh, probation as a profession cpoc as an association really had never done before and that was get in very deeply into an election cycle into the a proposition um so talk a little bit about the experience around how prop 57 came about and what our role was in in kind of getting that through yeah you you, you don't you don't know what you're gonna get into in any in any given year um and uh you know, 2016 was that kind of year that uh, I think thrust really thrust us, uh, the chief probation officers of California, and and you you refer to me, but you too, when it came to this occurring, um, you know, you were right there the whole time, and um, the chiefs and the discussions that took place again, <clears throat> I think at the time there was a problem, uh, and the governor knowing that we were the ones that could get it done because of AB 109, because of SB 678 prior to that. Um, I think the governor realized that uh, we're, you know, an ally and we're, we're uniquely positioned within the criminal justice system that, um, and he had the confidence in us to come and talk to us and say, how can we, you know, solve this last problem before um, he's done being governor? He really was looking at a way to put an indeterminate spin on a determinate sentence. And I think Prop 57 does that. You know, it, it did three things, and it did really three simple things. Um, it it put that spin at the end of the sentence in that um, an offender that's in CDCR could get to the parole board sooner than they ever could. But getting to the parole board 
and getting parole are really two different things. That's a good point. So um, it got them to the parole board where the parole board is made up of mostly retired law enforcement, you know, personnel, staff of varying levels. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, they're appointed by the governor, but nonetheless, you get to them, you complete your case. And if if on paper um, and during that interview, it looks like you've done the things that um, they would be looking for to grant you parole, so be it. Taking a step beyond that, uh, Prop 57 took away the direct filing that the DAs, the district attorneys, uh, were able to do prior to Prop 57. That to me was going to be the the heavy lift um, because right. we're you know we're, we're uh, justice partners, and um, I think you know we want to play nice in the sandbox, but whenever, whenever you take someone's discretion away, it makes it difficult. But the the frankly the DAs didn't really um, have too much heartburn over that. Even even my DA, um, it never was a, a topic locally. Mm-hmm. And then um, rolling into uh, credits and how to how CDCR could potentially award credits to inmates that are, are doing programs. They're not just sitting in their cell breathing. They're doing things, things that are positive, things that are rehabilitative, even though limited as they were then um, as far as programming in CDCR, still figuring out a way to award credits and, and recognize that. And if you want to call them extra credits, so be it. But still, you're earning credits rather than just getting credits. And those are really two different things. And I, I think um, uh, any correctional administrator, because sheriffs have ran jails forever, they've always been able to award credits as an administrator, how they want to award them beyond what the law says. But um, why wouldn't we want to do that at CDCR? Why wouldn't we want to allow the the infrastructure and, and the administrators to come up with a schema to to, to do that and, and um, you know, proportionally award credits uh, that they saw fit. And, and, and they had to go to public hearings to do all that as well. So it wasn't like they were just doing it in a vacuum. Right. So um, those really were the three tenets of, of 57. And, you know, I, I know you have that down because you actually <laughs> accompanied Governor Brown on the campaign trail right. to try to to try to get this um, this understood or better understood. And one of the things that I found uh super interesting about the whole experience looking back at it um, for us you know all policy making has some level of politicking in, involved right and you know we've even talked on this podcast already a little bit about how probation chiefs are not elected officials um you know we oftentimes aren't in that the politics side of the realm even though we have to be kind of understanding it and kind of navigate it and oftentimes an election cycle doesn't really, I mean, they're looking for sound bites, right? And probation's work, the probation's mission oftentimes doesn't fit a sound bite very easily. But this particular piece of um, law, I don't think could have been successful without probation's kind of explanation, even in the nuance about what it means, what you just explained. And to have uh, the governor feel like that was something that was needed actually in an election context was something very different for for us. And so for a moment, at least, uh, talk a little bit about that, how what that was like being on the election trail. Not many probation chiefs have that opportunity. Right. And, and, and um, it's funny, uh, when I talk to chiefs or, or when we have trainings for subordinate staff or whatever the case may be, someone will mention kind of phrase it how you just phrase it that um, I hit the campaign trail with the governor. Right. Um, 
I ended up wherever the governor was. <laughs> I didn't get the, the the special treatment that that he got when it comes to you know being the governor right, of the absolutely. state of California. As he, he should, he yes. could drive out you know on the tarmac and hop on a plane and go. Um, I was the one that had to get there two hours early. You know, park my car, get to where I needed to get to, so and ensure that I was there. So it's, 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 right. it's not glorious, is the way you're trying to. It's not glorious. Um, but it, again, it was well worth it. The experience, I, I would never, um, you know, uh, throw away ever, um, going through that. And, and it, the, it, it, it was great. The friends that were made, um, you know, the, again, you, the rest of the CPOC staff, Diane Cummins yeah. and her expertise and, um, the way that she can explain and give a historical perspective as well as, you know, um, going forward, how this works and what it's going to mean it made things much easier for me um, because, and frankly, Governor Brown, it, he can explain things and his demeanor um, was such that it, it really had a calming effect on everyone in the room, whether it was the LA Times or whether it was the Sacramento Bee or the Littlest Paper, or, the, I mean, there was one time that I made my way down to a a um, discussion in Southern California out in San, San Bernardino County, and I was the sole person there with regard to Prop 57, but it was important to make those contacts. So um, it was very interesting and, and, and um, enlightening to get his, the governor's take on things and to get the historical perspective from Diane and to have those two really team up and um, be able to do what they did. I don't know that there could have been really anyone else that could have done that um, yeah. and given that perspective that they could give at every phase and every question, uh, it, it was very, it was very intriguing. Um, I had a lot of fun. Uh, but again, I, you know, sitting in traffic, he would hop, hop in the car with CHP and buzz down the, the lane. It, 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 it was it's a challenge. A different. Time. It was a little different <laughs> yes. experience and understood, yes. understood. And, um, and it's, it's interesting to hear you describe it. So just so folks know, Diane Cummins was a special advisor to the governor at the time and, uh, really was, um, well, she's done a lot in her career, but was very instrumental in kind of making sure that AB 109 was implemented, you know, uh, in a way that was responsive to what we were learning on the ground um, as to what was happening. And um, and then, of course, um, obviously accompanied uh, the governor and uh, a lot of the policy development around Prop 57. Although I have to say, and I was not in the rooms as often as you were with the governor. Um, I have been in the rooms on other times with him on other things. A calming influence is not how I would describe <laughs> Governor Brown and in any uh, he's he demands a lot for the policy discussion, you know, and oftentimes those are really robust. But on the campaign trail, trying to make sure people understand, you know, maybe a little bit of a different uh, a different demeanor um, uh, because he was really masterful in trying to communicate a message um, and a tough one. Right. This was right. kind of a tough message. It, it sometimes kind of fought against what most people thought they understood about the system. And and so um, I know it's probably one of the reasons why, you know, you were chief of the year from us, because <laughs> that that was uh, that was a lot that you had to, to do to kind of make um, that happen. And so uh, so we appreciate it. And, and it was really kind of a culmination. You, you talk about 678, SB 678 being kind of the. Um, foundation, you know, in, in getting very probation specific, getting us ready with evidence-based practices, kind of being sure that we're kind of thinking through how to change behavior and what works. 
AB 109 and then Prop 57. I, I guess I really hadn't thought about that as a progression. I mean, is mm -hmm. that kind of how it rolled out locally? Is that is that how you see it as you look back? I, I do. Um, and it, for me, um, from the local perspective, because again, Chiefs with CPOC, you know, we have the state perspective and what goes on. And then we also have, we have to, we're held to answer locally. Right. And um, for me, it was uh, easy to explain and to show success that we had under six, 678. And then it was easy to explain and show the successes we had locally under AB 109. Prop 57, though, was uh, also different locally in that um, I had, even though I was president of CPOC and I was carrying the chief's message at the state level and going out on the campaign trail, um, locally, I had my board against it my board of supervisors against it. I had my district attorney against it, my sheriff against it. So, um, you know, there were times where I find my, you know, I find myself on the opposite side of the aisle from them, not very often. And this was, this was a huge one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I always remember that year we talked quite a bit about threading the needle when we had to talk about things and, and really explain. Um, and I, I use that in a positive way because, uh, while publicly, um, my board and, and again, my DA and my sheriff uh, may have been against Prop 57. When we would talk to each other, they understood the niche, if you will, that, that it really filled and why we were doing the things that we were doing. Why do you think that is? Because I imagine that was very difficult uh, to do. Um, although I think a great testament that sometimes you can have disagreements on things, right. um, but yet still continue to work together, you know, and that certainly seemed to be the case in, in Amador. But um, is there anything that you would attribute to that? I, again, I think it just comes back to being, um, being able to communicate yeah. with each other and, and, you know, small counties, big counties, uh, medium-sized counties, I, I, it just, it's so important to be able to pick up the phone and talk to that person directly and, you know, explain what is going on or why this is happening or why it isn't happening and hearing it from the horse's mouth. Um, I, I just being communicative to, to everything that's going on and, um, you know, while you hold your cards close to your chest, in some cases, I think there's other areas that, you know, you need to be very transparent and um, honest and forthright and, and being, being able to agree to disagree at times. So we've talked about uh, the reforms that kind of we've been really instrumental in either developing or helping to craft a solution, um, uh, supporting. Uh, what about when, it, I mean, we don't always support, you know, the various reforms or even think, you know, that, uh, that they may be going in the right direction. So, you know, talk a little bit about maybe how do we make reform successful when we weren't supportive of it? Um, and what kind of challenges are presented to probation when, when we're kind of put in that situation? I think what it comes down to, again, uh, even though the communication didn't occur early on, or frankly, we just don't think that whatever the reform is will work. Um, we have that track record of being the ones to get things done. And when all is said and done, if it's law, it's law, and we need to do what we need to do. And if it means making lemonade out of lemons, uh, probation does that. That's true. Um, I, I mean, I was just having a discussion today locally about a situation, and um, we're the ones that are going to carry the water. I, I, I just, maybe we all have the same problem, that we all have a problem um, saying no. But uh, <laughs> and we, and we've done it a lot this year. We're, yes. we're opposed to quite a few things. Um, I, I don't recall 
many years where we've come out as opposed as to as many things as we have this year, but it's true. Um, it's well thought out. And, uh, I really think that, um, saying no is powerful and has a, has a, an important message behind it when it's appropriate. And, um, ultimately when things come our way, um, the system many times looks at us to figure out and to maneuver and to, to really get it done and bring our partners, both justice and um, on the uh, health and human services side together to really make sure that when all is said and done, what we've done is tried to do our best with what was given to us. Because again, when they don't communicate with the experts or the, you know, the boots on the ground, um, what comes out again, maybe lemons, but uh, ultimately we need to figure it out in the name of public safety. Goes back to communication, I guess, right? Whether you're, you know, opposed to something or not. And, you know, it's interesting. You said something powerful, you know, about saying no sometimes is powerful. And you're right. This this year um, in particular, um, I think we've probably had more um, times where we have said no. And we don't like to do that, honestly. Right. right? I mean, you've been around the table, uh, you know how your colleagues feel about it. And it's probably reflective of exactly what you're saying with those local conversations. It's, it's really not a comfortable place for us to be, you know. Um, uh, But it's important sometimes, right? I mean, and talk a little bit about that. Why is it important for probation's like point of view voice to be heard in policymaking in and around criminal justice, juvenile justice. What is it that we bring to the table that's different? Well, it, it seems like many times um, both the legislature, um, our local politicians, you know, heck, I, I was talking to one of my officers today where um, his brother doesn't even quite understand what he does. And he's been doing, he's been a probation right. officer for 12 years. Right. It, it's, it's difficult to explain um, the things that we do and we get involved with, you know, we don't have a TV show or had a TV show out there like cops that, right. you know, it's very clear cut what a deputy sheriff does or what a, um, a police officer does. Um, there's been a few, you know, parole agent shows, but again, I think their, um, their capacity and what they do is, is limited where our, um, sphere of influence is, is really across the board. It's from, and especially now it's from um, pretrial or, or, or uh, right after arrest all the way through right. up to five years um, beyond sentencing. And, and really, in many cases, it could be even beyond that if the person, if the offender is sent to prison and then comes out on um, PRCS, you know, mm-hmm. post-release community supervision, one of our caseloads. So um, while law enforcement, you know, frontline law enforcement many times has a point in time contact with an offender, usually at their worst moment in their lives, um, we may have uh, contact with that offender for many, many years to come. And I think um, that really is a different differentiator in how we do business, not only with those that we supervise, but then we have the ancillary pieces where we're coming up with programming to deal with this uh, situation. And many times that comes with funding to, to do that, but many times, frankly, it doesn't. And we have to figure out how to, um, you know, squeeze that, uh, that grape even more so locally to get as much as we can out right. of every dollar. Um, so then we're the ones at the table where, yeah, we arrest this, this person, we put them back in custody. Um, now we've got to turn and advocate for them to get into this program, or we need to advocate for them to go on a GPS so they can get back to work. You know, we're trying to hold offenders accountable all the while ensuring that we're also holding them accountable to rehabilitative programs. Um, so again, I don't think there's anyone else that's as uniquely positioned in the system as we are and, and how we can, flow back from 
the health and human services side of things back to full on law enforcement where really, um, you know, we're dressed and we look just like any other officer on the street. And, and right. many times we have to do those things. It absolutely. just is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Makes it, uh, and we, we have another uh, podcast episode that's talking a little bit about just that, the modern probation officer and how diverse um, the skill set is uh, that goes into that. So I guess it does make sense as to why, from a policy perspective, we may find ourselves sometimes really agreeing with some of our law enforcement partners um, and kind of being in lockstep with some of that, while at the same time, maybe being on the opposite side of where they are, um, a la Prop 57 that we talked about a little bit earlier. So, um, you know, it's it does stand to reason with as many different things that we're doing and responsible for in the system that uh, we maybe understand some of the unintended consequences of that policy, perhaps, you know, in a different phase of the system. So we would have a different you know, philosophy or position on some of these policies. So, um, so yeah, that is, uh, that is very, that is very interesting. I, you know, I want to go back to uh, your time talking about Prop 57 and those relationships for a little bit. Um, You know, you talked a lot about going to different places like editorial boards, for example, and talking about policy, that's a little bit of a different forum than, for example, talking in a legislative setting or anything else that we had done before. What was that like? What what surprised you about that interaction or, or what um, types of things that they would, would be looking for or what moved them? Just curious as to how you felt about that. I, I think when I recall sitting back at, at those editorial boards, um, I was, again, sur- I, surprised but not surprised that they didn't understand, you know, our really our position, you know, they, they didn't understand what we did. And I felt like many times um, what I did when I would speak at one of those or when I would be on a panel or whatever the case may be, I would, I would start out by explaining what a probation officer does. And then I would take it from there. And I think that would really wrap the package for them. Um, I mean, again, yeah. Governor Brown made it easy um, when it came to my turn to, to chime in on uh, certain issues. Uh, so did Diane, frankly. Um, but I think that was that was the thing that struck me was was how little they knew about probation and us being there, I think, was important for us to be there in that um, it allowed us the opportunity to to get out uh, mm-hmm. in front of everyone. And this is this is what we do. Um, I think the other piece that was that was interesting was they I, f- I felt like they understood that um, probation officers had compassion mm. and um you know, loved what they did and were able to do and put on those different hats when it came to dealing with offenders. I think they've, I think the groups, the editorial boards and the groups valued that. That's really interesting to hear. Um, I'm not sure we've talked about that actually. And um, it's so important. It seems like at the heart of a lot of what we talk about around the table, right. And trying to figure out how do we communicate our message? How do people really understand? And those those things that you just explained are probably the most important thing. Like if we can only have people understand those pieces of it, I think a lot of the other things kind of tend to fall into place. Right. So, um, so that's that I, I, I apologize taking us back to that, but that was one of the things that I thought, wait, I'd be really <coughs> curious to know what was that like? Um, so uh, going back to uh can you think of a time where we were asked to do or implement a reform 
and it just didn't work. I mean, we we often hear we're not going to let it fail. We're going to make the lemonade out of the lemons, for example. But is there is there something that was was really problematic in your mind? And um, we just dissected 109 and why maybe it did work. Um, wonder if there's anything that didn't on your mind that we would dissect to see why it didn't. You know, I don't. I don't have anything yeah. you know, off offhand that I can think of that didn't work. I mean, I have questions about some of the reforms that have occurred over the last year or two that yeah. I'm, I'm wondering how it's going to play out um, because, you know, in a, a couple of those, we either weren't involved or we weren't involved and that communication didn't occur that we talked about earlier, uh, early on with the experts. And, and now we're kind of left with the bag to, to figure out and how to, how right. to make it work. So um, those really are the the ones going forward. You know, AB 1950, I think uh, yeah. while a, a reform um, and didn't necessarily require us to do much implementation, um, it really changed the game. When you have offenders that you know, you had three years, four years, five years on probation, and now right. it's a two-year grant and a, for a felony and a one-year grant for a misdemeanor, it really speeds up the clock. And I, I almost fear like it's it speeds the clock up so much that we're not going to really have the time um, invested in this person to, to see some, some, um, behavior change that will last. We may see right. some short-term behavior change, but that's really different than, than ultimately what, uh, you want to get that long lasting, um, concrete and grounded behavior change. It just doesn't happen that quick. Well, that's a great point. Change <laughs> does not happen that no. quick. That's a really, really good point, whether it's for systems or for people. Right. Um, and so, you know, it, it makes me wonder, um, if, having less time to really address the rehabilitation side of things, does that then kind of start lean more towards, well, then we really have to just be sure we're digging in on the accountability and the, the enforcement piece. I mean, I think that's a dangerous unintended consequence of not having enough time to really meaningfully work with folks um, in a way that kind of um, brings about sustainable change. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's something we're going to have to see. I think it's something we're going to have to guard against, you know? Right. And I think along those same lines, uh, although on the juvenile side of things, SBA 23, I mean, frankly, for me, um, being a chief in a small County, I don't have a juvenile hall that, or a a youth detention facility that I have to worry about. However, I have to to contract for those beds in case I do have one of my Juveniles get themselves in trouble, and my judge just decides to send that juvenile um, into that process. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think for us not to be as involved as we were with AB 109, as we were with 678, as we were with 57, and to really get SB 23 thrust upon us with really a, a, a very vulnerable piece of our population. I mean, kids, yeah. these kids, and in many cases, um, young adults, uh, are the ones that have the highest risk, highest need that, frankly, in the past, chiefs have come together when the closure of um, the Division of Juvenile Justice uh, has come up at the state level. We've fought back and said, we need you um, to take this very limited piece of the population and um, they need your help to now turn that on its head and in such a short time um, move that to, to the counties, not only going forward with kids that will be committed, but ultimately we're going to have to take those kids back from the DJJ institutions. Not that there's that many, but those kids and young adults that are there can have severe impacts on how things are happening locally. And when I see my chiefs, I see my fellow chiefs 
um, grappling with the issue, the, the high users of DJJ or just the one that that chief knows is in DJJ and um, is thinking to themselves, how am I going to ensure that I have rehabilitative programs locally, ensure that I'm addressing that juvenile's needs educationally, ensure that I'm addressing their needs behaviorally, and then ultimately I have to ensure public safety of both that juvenile and the juveniles that are in the institution with them. Um, it, it, uh, it's hard to see. And, um, and many times, uh, I, I get a little bit angry when it, when I think of how it was rolled out, um, how we weren't consulted at, at a level that I feel like we should have been consulted. And then, um, ultimately, um, not having, uh, Sacramento clear the field for us. Mm-hmm. I think, I think we needed, we needed leadership to say, as we did with AB 109, when they made us the chair of the CCP, say probation is the uh, agency, the department locally that's going to handle this, and they're going to and they're going to handle it locally. Everyone else pretty much needs to back off. And I know I'm making that very simplistic, no, but we really makes, needed yeah. we needed that from Sacramento, and 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 now even more so going forward, um, we continue to need it. And I, I'm crossing my fingers that Sacramento is going to be there for us. Yeah. to uh, help us. Well, it ties to what you said earlier about what makes it successful reform, right? And that's communication, you know, and when when maybe the concepts or the ideas get muddled because the communication isn't, you know, kind of um, clear and you do need to have clear lines as to who is going to be held responsible for things happening. Um, and oftentimes it's hard because that's placed on our shoulders. But when it's not placed on our shoulders and maybe it's it's a little bit less clear, it, that that also has different types of um, anxiety producing um, uh, kind of situations. And and you're, you're right. I mean, uh, we hear it from the other chiefs as well. You know, we will step up and figure out some of the problem um, and, and a way to best handle it because the youth really need our our leadership right at the local level to do that so we're seeing that happen but we're also seeing how much uh you know anxiety and unnecessary kind of uh work to try to fix things um on the back end in and that's i think when you can see reform fail even a good idea even if it's a good idea you see reform fail when some of those those pieces are in place so yeah i do worry a little bit about it you're you're right you're projecting a lot of what we're hearing around the table as well but as but we also know that um we've been asked to do things before that you know we weren't really sure would work and or how would work and you know we try to find a way to make that happen i i suspect that will be the case here i just think it'll be a lot harder than it maybe needed to be right and i i just again i feel for for my fellow my fellow chiefs and, and just um, the ancillary noise that yeah, it just it, it's it's many times it's overwhelming. And, and right. really, we spent too much time dealing with that noise when we could have really spent the time that the, the precious time we had because it wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. infinite. It was a finite amount of time when the you know, intake closes, DJJ closes altogether. The, these kids need to go back. We really needed to use every ounce of that time in um planning, programming, all all the things that we need to take care of. And frankly, we spent a lot of time fending off um, others and other people that thought they had better ideas or could do things that, that we could do. And and there's just, it just isn't there. They they don't have, they don't, I don't think they understand um, again, understand what we do, but they don't have the capacity to deal deal with these kids um, and and the youth that, that uh, are coming back to us. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the difference between kind of, 
people, the doers and people who like need to really have a voice at the table to help make sure that the doers are kind of keeping everything, you know, in mind. I mean, certainly not, I don't hear you saying that, you know, we're the ones with all the answers and nobody sure. else has them, yeah. but ultimately the, the people who have to do have to be involved with kind of the development of, of the reform right. of the solution to, to the reform. And uh, I think that's been a consistent message we've been hearing from the chiefs on all of the the podcast discussions and just around our table. So appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, reform for reform's sake, yeah, it just it doesn't make any sense. You know, so and true. I think, I think, um, and, and maybe you're going to get to this later, but it just seems like, uh, you know, from prop 57 in 2016, I can't believe it's been six years. Yeah. Um, things go by. So it happens so fast and I can't believe AB 109, you know, is a little over 10 years ago. Um, but these reforms come at us so fast. It would it would be great if we could just take a breath and stop tinkering with the the system, unless there's something glaring. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. Right. But um, these these subtleties, if you will, in in many cases, um, it just feels like it would be now would be the time to let the locals get their feet under them, you know, themselves, and um, let's even get our foot off the gas for a little bit with reforms and let's see what is working and what isn't working and then tweak it from there. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's a great point, right? <laughs> I mean, well, like, you know, we're preaching to the choir right, here, right? right. I, I realize that, but hey, that's, it's our podcast. We can <laughs> preach to the choir here, but I think that, you know, that's what strikes me again as missing. It's that, that conversation we've done so much change in California. I mean, I think some people know that and some people are concerned about it, right? We hear a lot about that, but I think some people don't think any of the stuff that we have been doing for, as you just now documented over a decade, um, major reforms to the system, major reforms to the culture of the system. And shouldn't we be sure that that's going in the right and intended direction, you know, and um, measure it. And then, as you say, tweak it. If something's glaring, obviously, we're going to always have to be addressing those quicker. But we don't even know for sure if everything's working, if you're constantly changing it because you can't measure it or you can't even just evaluate it. So um, so that does seem like a uh, you know, a good recipe for us to try to, to, to use going forward. Um, unfortunately we don't get to set all of the rules. So I suspect we're going to still have those conversations, but, um, it's helpful to hear what makes it work in your mind when we're talking about reform and maybe what are some of the pitfalls, um, that didn't necessarily need to, to be in place when it, you know, which could lead to it not working in, in some ways. But so, is there anything that, as you were kind of reflecting on this topic and it's so broad, I, I mean, I really appreciate you coming in to talk about this because I, I know it was on my list of really wanting to do I'm like, I want to talk to Chief Anini. <laughs> I mean, he's been at the, you know, sitting at the table in really important roles for us during all of these different changes and just to kind of get your thoughts on it. So I, I realize it's broad, but yeah. I'm so I'm guessing I didn't hit some things that as you were reflecting that you might want to just share. And I know you're a minimalist by trade, yeah. but, uh, but you've got some thoughts that I probably didn't hit. Right. Well, you know, you, you mentioned the last 10, 10 ish years again, um, even beyond that, really going back to uh, six seventy eight in, in 2009, I, you know, I, I think 
while these were big reforms, there were other little things along the That's way that, that, you know, that, that occurred. And, and all of those little things occurred all the while we were still doing our job our, our daily mm-hmm. jobs, you know, locally, we're still supervising the offenders in the field and we're still going to do searches. We're, um, attending, uh, you know, 40 hours of training minimum a year. We're, um, qualifying at the, the range with, with firearms. We're attending, um, juvenile and adult law update. And, and we have to stay on top of the reforms that occur in sentencing. Yep. Um, and we have probation officers in court where, you know, yeah, we have a DA, we have a judge, we have a public public defender, but many times that probation officer in court is the one that everyone's looking at to a get a recommendation from them based on, you know, what the, uh, uh, offenders before them for or, or alleged to have done or admitted or was found guilty of, um, come up with a solid recommendation. And then, um, how do we make that all happen? And, you know, many times it could be a, a young PO that's only been there for, you know, a short period of time, but they're expected to know as much about sentencing law as the three attorneys in the room. That's right. So all of those things are all happening while these bigger pieces of reforms are occurring. Yeah. While the, the chief maybe, or the chief's uh, management team gets to tackle those big reforms, um, you know, the others uh, down the, the uh, food chain and the, all the way down to the boots on the ground are hearing these things. And it's really incumbent upon that chief to make sure that um, he or she gets that information down to them. And in a way that all of us can understand it because they need to continue doing the job that they're doing in the name of public safety. And then we need to ensure that we're um, supporting and doing things with regard to um, reforms that come forward uh, that again are in the name of public safety and then implementing all of this while it's all occurring at the same time. So, you know, this whole uh, discussion wasn't to induce more anxiety on my <laughs> part here. Like I was like, Oh, that's true. It's like, there is, there is a lot. And it's, it's uh, you know, while I've known that to be true, it really is interesting hearing that come through in all of the conversations we've been having um, as a part of this podcast, because it's partly to um, really speak to uh, our staff. You know, really to kind of help arm them with the understanding of these global issues of these very various moving parts. So, um, uh, you know, I I knew this would be a really interesting one for them. And so I really appreciate uh, you spending the time with us today. The one question, final question I wanted to ask, which we're trying to start to ask uh, others as well. If you weren't the chief, what assignment would you want to do right now in the times that we're in? In your department, I had I, you caught me off guard. I, I have <laughs> stumped Chief Benini. This is definitely um, something that's going to be not cut from yeah. the podcast. I, I, I think if I had a choice, it would be to um, to deal with. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess in every county they have this, but deal with the uh, post release community supervision um, offenders. I'd, I'd like to be that officer and have that because it was something that. As I came up through the ranks, I had a juvenile caseload when I started, and my juvenile caseload was um, kids in placement. And our philosophy of the chief that hired me was um, the uh, when the county doesn't our county didn't balk it when he used placements, and he felt that if you placed a juvenile, that that would be one less juvenile that would commit a crime locally if they you know did mm-hmm. something else. So we were really heavy users of placements, group homes and foster homes. I, you know, at one point I had 42 kids for a small county like Amador wow. in placement. And um, the chief that came in after uh, that chief, 
he, his philosophy was different and we kept kids local and we dealt with them. We ended up getting down to one placement in one year Wow! because he said, you guys are bringing these kids home. And we just forced families and the school district and the behavior health and social services. We forced them to, to really, um, not just necessarily do their job, but, um, we, we played nice in the sandbox together and developed, and this was before case plans, frankly, were really talked about. Right. We were really developing case plans and right. how to deal with these, these kids. So, um, I did juvenile, I did, um, every facet of adults, but PRCS was wasn't the after, there right? when oh, I was, okay. you know, it was after I was yeah. chief. So, um, I didn't get to, to experience that. And I, I have a lot of, um, when AB 109 came in, uh, looking around my department, uh, I remember, you know, picking the officer that I thought could, you know, do the right. best job at that. It's changed a few times between retirements and, sure. and we try to uh, move officers around. My current officer does a, um, a great job. Many times it goes way too far and beyond um, to, to try to uh, impact these, you know, people's lives in a positive nature. Um, but at the same time, uh, understands the yin and the yang, you know, the, yeah. the carrot and the stick. And I think that's really important. So that, that intrigues me. I always have a lot of contact with him when, when yeah. we talk about what's going on. I even talked to him today, um, asking him what if he thought if there was a policy change with, P, with regard to PRCS, a law change or something, some resource that I'm missing that maybe I could come up with yeah. um, to help him out. So we talked for about half an hour and then I headed down here to, to do the podcast. Well, I'm so. going to want to hear what he had to say. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. But, but until we know, we won't put it on, uh, we right. won't put it on blast. <laughs> <laughs> but but that would be my, that would be the thing. Interesting. I okay. Well, see, I like having a question that I can ask chiefs that yeah. I don't know the answer to. So that was a, that was a good one. You well, didn't thank, give me that ahead of time. <laughs> I will. That's the point. <laughs> well, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. As always, I really enjoy kind of not only tripping down memory lane on some right. of these things, but, you know, really kind of um, digging into things and learning about uh, different aspects of the of the journey that I didn't really know about and really do appreciate, uh, you know, all of your work. Um, you know, it was it was monumental, continues to be your great leader for our, for our people. And I'm really glad that we got a chance to capture some of your thoughts on the, the podcast. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you having me. Great.